Well, friends, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, please join me this, mo- this morning by turning to 2 Timothy chapter 3. And this morning we're studying verses 10 to 17. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 to 17. This morning's message is titled, All of Scripture for All of Life. Now, one of the rhythms of grace that we have intentionally created at Living Hope is to preach a message at the beginning of every new year that is devoted exclusively to the importance of the Bible in our lives. And I love this rhythm of grace in our church. But did you know that I haven't always been committed to the scriptures like I am now? Let me tell you the story. Upon coming to faith in Jesus when I was 20 years old, nothing was more important in my life than the Bible. I went from knowing nearly nothing about the Bible due to my own hardness of heart and blindedness because of sin, not because of a lack of exposure. Mom and dad did a great job of exposing me to the Bible, but my heart, my heart was hard, my eyes were blind, my ears were deaf. I knew nearly nothing about the Bible, but then when I came to faith, I spent as much time as I possibly could studying the Bible. I adored the Bible. I was eating the Bible every chance I could. I was cutting out hobbies that I had so that I could read and study more of the Bible. During these early days in my my faith in Jesus, I felt like I was the happiest Christian in the world. But that happiness would come to a screeching halt in my second year following Jesus. At the time, I was being discipled by the guy who led me to to faith in Christ, the guy who was was preaching the gospel, the guy who was preaching the gospel, who I responded to the preaching of that gospel, came to faith in Christ. I was being discipled by this guy. He was the most spiritually minded man that I had ever met up to this point in my life. He's one of those guys that when he prayed, it sounded as if the skies were thundering. When he preached, it felt as if he was talking to you every time. In my opinion, I was the luckiest guy in the world to be discipled by him. Now, all appeared to be well until he decided to teach me some deeper things in the faith. Now, being a new Christian, I didn't yet have the discernment to know that I should squirm at the sound of deeper things in the faith. So I eagerly leaned in. What he proceeded to teach me was how the Bible is not God's word, but simply contains God's word. Now what's the difference? The difference is this. If one believes that the Bible only contains God's word, then it provides license to pick and to choose based upon subjective reasoning, areas in the Bible that are authoritative and areas that are not. Areas that you like, areas that appease you, areas that fit you, while you 
while you have permission to disregard the areas that make you uncomfortable. My blind belief in what he taught me not only began to erode my convictions, there became a landslide of my convictions. Within a few short months, I became a different person entirely. My pride became unchecked. My faith became weak and unstable. My convictions began to look more like the non-Christian than the Christian. Even my love for the lost had waned. It was gone. My joy was replaced with a deep sense of God's displeasure. Though I was still spending a considerable amount of time praying, I was not growing as a Christian. I was actually beginning to wilt. I followed this cursed direction for over a year until at last God got a hold of me. And he broke me in order to once again bless me. In the summer of 2013, I relocated to North Texas and attended a church that was in line with all of my New Age convictions. I worked 12-hour days, six days a week serving the poor while attending a house church movement led by all women. That's right. I believed at that time that the Bible had oppressed women long enough with its strict regulations and her position in the home and the church. So I put my money where my mouth was, and I found a church that looked and sounded just like me. But there was one huge problem. I was miserable. God's Holy Spirit, who indwelt me, made me feel miserable for my waywardness. But I had serious trouble during that year discerning that it was the Spirit. I just was terribly depressed. I remember calling my mom and dad at one point and saying, I mean, I went from being the most joyful person you'd ever met to saying, I am really depressed and I need to go see a counselor. Never thought I'd, I would be in that position. I was terribly, terribly sick in soul. Now, this was until one night in June of 2013, as I was under heavy conviction in my soul, I had a vision. God gave me a vision. I saw myself walking along a path when suddenly I began to sink in quicksand. And the deeper that I sank in this quicksand, the heavier the pressure became on my chest, which was symbolic of the conviction that I had been under for the last year. As I sank deeper into this quicksand, the sand began to surround my neck, and I felt in the vision, and even in reality, that I was going to die. I remember crying out to the Lord in anguish, and instantly, upon crying out to Him, the sinking stopped. My feet had landed on something firm. My feet had landed on something solid, unmovable, unshakable. And upon further inspection, albeit a vision, the solid rock that my feet had fallen upon 
was the Bible, the book that I had disregarded for the last year. And all of a sudden, I see my feet standing upon something unshakable and unmovable, and it was the very thing that I had thrown away. It was the Bible. I saw it clearly and vividly in the vision. It was God's word that had saved my life. Now, in this moment, I wept as loud as I have ever wept before. I mourned how far I had wandered and didn't even realize it. And I rejoiced that God was so faithful to rescue me, though I didn't deserve it. Through the tears, I promised him that I would never depart from his word again. I promised the Lord that I would build my life on his word. That come what may in my life, sink or swim, I'm standing on the word. I'm walking with the word. I'm following his counsel and his instruction and everything in my life. You know what, friend? That's exactly what Paul is commanding Timothy to do as well. Timothy lived in the city of Ephesus, a city that was remarkably similar in culture to the city that we, that we live in in our day. And Timothy was surrounded by teachers just like the man whom I was discipled by early in my Christian faith. Men who started out sound in theology. Men who were schooled in the scriptures. Men who at one time were devoted to doctrine. But that was until they swerved from the truth, as Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.18. But not Timothy. Thank God, not Timothy. Unlike these swerving men, Timothy remained anchored to God's word. He remained steadfast on the sacred path of Scripture. And through this text, the Lord pivots to each of us this morning and asks us a question that I hope that you feel deep in the recesses of your heart. The path to maturity in Christ follows the pattern of Scripture. Are you on it? The path to maturity in Christ follows the pattern of Scripture. Are you on it? In this proven path, it will have three signposts which help determine, which will help the Christian determine if they're going in the right direction. Of course, you know, these three signposts will serve as our three points this morning. Before we turn our attention to them, let's, let's turn our attention to the best part of this morning's message, which is the reading of God's Word. 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 10. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions, and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, 
All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good word. Amen. Thank, thank God for the scriptures. Let's do that now. Let's thank him as we go to him in prayer and then ask for his help. Father, thank you so much that you've preserved your will and your word. Thank you so much. We are utterly undeserving to have in our possession your word. God, not only are we unworthy, but we are unable to see what we ought to see, respond as we ought to respond. So God, would you please fill us afresh with the Spirit so that he might open our eyes to behold wonderful things from the Word. In Christ's name, amen. Our first point this morning is marked with signs of real success. Verses 10 and 11. But one of the problems that we have when we're trying to determine the authenticity of Christianity in either a person or a place is the form of measurement that we choose to use. We tend to often look to the size of a building. We look to the commas in a budget. We look to the number of people on staff, and we look to the amount of influence that they will to be an indication of who's really walking with the Lord. Now listen, this form of measurement may be an indication of God's blessing, but it's certainly not the indication of God's blessing. It's not the indication that we are called to use in determining and discerning the authenticity of the Christian faith in a person or in a place. After all, the people that Paul is warning Timothy of are people who have the appearance of godliness. That's what he says in chapter 3, verse 5. These are individuals who have the appearance of godliness. But that's our problem, isn't it? We often look to the appearance of things. We often look to the appearance of godliness to determine the legitimacy of godliness. But Paul says to us this morning, no, don't do that. Don't do this based solely on human reasoning. Base growth in godliness, whether your own growth or whether the growth of your local church or, or another local church, base all of this on God's form of measurement. Size yourself up to what God says. Size your leaders up 
to what God says. Size your church up to what God says. Size your opinion of blessedness to what God says. So what is God's form of measurement? Well, Paul tells us that the first form of measurement in verse 10 is this. He says to Timothy, you, however, have followed my teaching. Now, this is a reference to sound doctrine. You, Timothy, have followed sound doctrine. You, Timothy, have yielded your life to sound theology. You, Timothy, have been unwavering in sound doctrine, despite the growing current and winds of the day. Paul was a man who taught the Bible. Paul was a Bible man. Men, you know what kind of men I want you to be? I want you to be Bible men. Women, you know what kind of women I want you to be? I want you to be Bible women. You, church, you know what kind of church I want us to be? I want us to be a Bible church. Paul was a Bible man. Paul was not a guy, you show up to hear him preach on Sunday, walking through a book of the Bible, you're not going to find him avoiding the really challenging text in Scripture. You show up to listen to Paul preach on a Sunday morning, you're not going to find him teaching some things in the Bible while avoiding other things in the Bible in order to attract a crowd, in order to win the approval of the day, in order to tickle ears. Paul was a guy who taught the whole counsel of God, all scripture for all of life. That's what he commands the Ephesian elders to do in Acts 20, 27. He leaves them with this. You think what would it have been like to sit under Paul? What, what, what great spiritual teacher he would have been. What, what deep insights he would have brought. Let me just show you what he would have said. Sit under the whole counsel of God. Matt, you're preaching on Sunday? Don't get cute up there. Teach the whole counsel of God. Don't avoid anything. Don't do gymnastics to try to explain something that makes sense in this day and age that never made sense in the centuries before. Teach the word. Teach sound doctrine. You know what? Because of Paul's influence... Timothy was a Bible man. And I hope, if I have one influence on this church, I hope that it's that. That you would love your Bibles more. That you would adore your Bibles more. That when you die as an old person, God willing, that your Bible would be torn to pieces like my own grandfather's was. That it would be highlighted and torn and ripped and, and tethered and dog-eared and commented on. God forbid that you come to the end of your life and your Bible looks like it's still brand new. God forbid that. There'd be no greater tragedy in your life. 
than if that were the case. Come what may of your children. Come what may of your house. Come what may of your career. Nothing would be worse than to come to the end of your days having a Bible in your possession that you claim to have read that didn't look like you read it. Didn't look like you knew it. Timothy was a Bible man. He lived his life according to sound doctrine. He followed Paul's conduct as well. He he followed Paul's teaching, but he also followed Paul's conduct, which means, I think, his manner of living, Paul's humility, Paul's boldness, Paul's selflessness. Timothy followed Paul's aim in life. Now, what is Paul's aim? You don't have to look long. He tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, his aim was this. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Paul and Timothy had learned to live with the audience of one. How do you remain steadfast in sound doctrine? By living with the audience of one. By living to please one. By living longing to see the smile of one. Who cares if you get the smile of the masses if you miss the smile of one? But if you long and live for the smile of him, you'll still care about the smile of the masses, but way less. Timothy also followed Paul's faith, which means Timothy was a gospel-centered man. He treasured the good news of the gospel. He also followed Paul's patience and love and steadfastness, which which I think is a reference to his pastoral ministry and how he faithfully cared for God's people despite their weaknesses and setbacks. He even followed Paul's persecutions and sufferings, which at this time had taken place before Timothy had even met Paul or even joined him on his missionary journeys. This first signpost shows us that the real growth in godliness lies not in the opinions of people, lies not in the approval of the masses, not, lies not in the accumulation of wealth or possessions, lies not in the amount of fans that you have following you on social media. There is not one single mention of these things. Instead, the real sign of our growth and godliness is found by answering this question from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13. Am I following the pattern of sound words that are recorded in the scriptures? Friend, do you see this signpost in your life? Do you see this signpost in your life? Leads to our second point this morning, marked with suffering, verses 12 and 13. Now I want to call on you to use your imagination with me for a moment. Imagine walking along a path and seeing a signpost that says, the way ahead gets steep. 
But as you continue to walk, instead of coming to a serious incline that requires all of your energy and all of your effort, you find a decline. Instead of the way getting harder, you find that the way actually has become easier. Now, wouldn't you be suspicious that you had taken a wrong turn somewhere along the way? Wouldn't you be concerned that the level of difficulty experienced was not the level of difficulty promised? Likewise, Paul says to Timothy in this section, expect difficulty. Anticipate opposition. He says to Timothy, the way ahead gets steep. He says in verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be filthy rich. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will have everything you ever wanted in life. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will have, will have the best relationships. No, it doesn't say any of that. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Paul wants Timothy to understand that if he has experienced some level of persecution in his ministry, he should discern it as a sign of genuineness in his faith. Paul wants to make sure that his young friend does not mistakenly come to the conclusion that persecution is an indication of God's displeasure. He needs Timothy to understand that persecution is a sign of God's pleasure, of, of your own growth in godliness. But that might create a problem for us, right? We live in a culture and in a context where we don't experience persecution. Or if we do experience persecution, it's not often. Do we panic? Because we aren't persecuted daily and therefore can't discern if we are walking the right way? Do we just go out and try to make as many enemies as possible so that they will say something ill of us? That way we can use it as a word of comfort for our own souls and our own assurance of faith? No. No, not at all. It's crazy. We don't go looking for persecution. We go out in faithfulness. Persecution comes as a result. So here's what we should do. There's a few things that I want to encourage you to do. The first is make sure, I want to make sure that you have a theology of suffering. So that if the day and when the day comes where you are persecuted as a result of your faith in Jesus, you have a category for how to process that, how to handle that, how to discern it as a smile from the Father's face, not a frown. Second, I want to ask you to do something else. I want to ask you to evaluate your own life. Ask, I want to ask you to evaluate whether or not you're living your faith out loud. Let me ask you something. Do your coworkers know that you are a Christian? Do your family members know that you're a believer? Do your neighbors know that you love the Lord? 
Listen, persecution would never come to someone that is not known for following Jesus. It would never come to those who look and sound just like the world. But if you begin to walk out your convictions, and don't just think that people, we live in the South, people aren't hostile to the name of Jesus. Because they've created, most of the time, created an image of what they think Jesus is like that's not according to Scripture. And he becomes an idol at that point. He becomes no longer the authentic, genuine Jesus of the Bible. He becomes a Jesus of their imagination. But listen, if you, if you say something and never be rude about it, it must be seasoned with grace, it must be seasoned with kindness, it must be seasoned with love. But if you say something about how God creates everyone, precious born in his image, and that you, you're going you're gonna to lay your life down to protect the unborn. You're going to do everything you can to protect the unborn. You're going to lay your body out in front of the abortionist. You're going to find some enemies real quick. If you kindly, gently, graciously say, God has created two sexes, two genders, created man, he's created woman. He's created them in his image, equal in value, dignity, and personhood. And he's designed for man and woman to complement one another and to bring him glory. Therefore, I, I cannot go along with calling you the pronouns that you request for me to call you. I don't do that because I hate you. I do that because I guarantee you, you will be persecuted. See, friends, I think we have a terrible problem in our day, we think that persecution only comes with. I'm not being persecuted. I talk about Jesus. I say I love Jesus, and then LGBTQ plus people say they love Jesus. Well, where's the persecution coming? Listen, persecution through the history of the church comes at these points of touching points of culture. Where is culture trying to rewrite what God has written? You touch that, you touch that, and you'll find persecution and then when you do see it as a smile from the father not as a frown and lastly please don't make the mistake of assuming that the the only sign of authenticity is persecution God's hands are not tied in prosperous places instead God oftentimes uses all forms of suffering not just persecution to authenticate a Christian's faith. So friend, if, if you're suffering, don't immediately conclude that that is, that is a sign of God's displeasure or frown in your life. Try to discern if there is any known or unconfessed sin in your life, and if there's not, walk in faith that God is pleased, that God is just sanctifying you. As he often does, he uses suffering to do that. So friend, has your Christianity ever cost you anything in your life? Authentic Christianity will always be costly. Mark my words. At least to our third and final point this morning, marked with the scriptures, verses 14 to 17. Now, allow me, if you would, to... 
ask you to use your imaginations one more time this morning. Imagine you're back at the scene from just a few moments ago, walking along a path, seeing a sign that says, the road ahead gets steep. But upon continuing to walk down the path, instead of it getting steep, you find a nice, comfortable decline, a nice, easy way down the trail. Now, wouldn't you ask, where did I go wrong? Wouldn't you wonder, when did I take a wrong turn between that sign and where I currently am? Now, if you were to trace your steps back, which you should if you're in that position, trace your steps back, here's what you would find. Your first misstep after seeing the sign, the way ahead gets steep, your first misstep on that path is sitting under false teaching, consuming false doctrine, believing bad theology. That's right. Whether it be on social media, YouTube is full of horrible teachers of the Bible. Social media is full of remarkably influential people who should not be teaching the Bible. How important is right teaching to our growth and godliness? How important is right teaching to your growth and godliness? Two words. It's essential. It's essential. Listen. Though you might be a person of prayer, if you believe false doctrine, your faith will die. Though you might be a Christian with great faith, the faith that can move mountains, but if you neglect the word, your faith will burn out. Though you might be the mightiest evangelist since Billy Graham, but if you turn down the volume of God's word and God's, the influence of God's word on your life, your love for the lost will wane. Everything that we do of value in the Christian life must be supported and sustained by right biblical truth or everything that we do in the Christian life dies. So Paul, when wanting to ensure that Timothy stays on the right path, tells him one plain and simple thing. Verse 14, continue in what you have learned and firmly believe. And it, as we were reading the text publicly a moment ago, I just had this thought. What has he taught Timothy? Go back and read 1 Timothy. If you just take a second and read 1 Timothy, you want to know where so many churches have gone in error today? Read 1 Timothy. So many churches have gone in error right there. And here Paul is gripping me, gripping me, gripping you by the collar of your shirt and saying, continue in what you have learned. What have I learned? What I just said in 1 Timothy, the entire book of 1 Timothy. Of course, this applies to the entirety of the Bible. Christian, do you want to continue to grow in godliness? Would you like to continue to grow in godliness? Or are you happy where you currently are? Recognize this if you want to continue to grow. 
The path to maturity in Christ follows the pattern of Scripture. Are you on it? Look at how deeply the truths of God's Word were sown into Timothy's life. Paul says in verse 15, he tells us that Timothy was acquainted with the sacred writings from childhood. Parents, would you like for me to help clarify your most important job with your kids in 2024? Yeah, don't miss soccer practice. Yeah, don't forget to feed them good veggies and, and, and fruit. Here's the most important thing of 2024 for your kids. Do you teach them the Bible? Do you, keep, do you teach your kids God's word? Why is it important for our children to know the Bible? Well, listen. First of all, it's because, as Paul says, the Bible is able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus. Now, what does that mean? Well, the salvation that Paul's referring to here is not simply our initial experience of coming to faith in Jesus, but this is a reference to how God uniquely uses his word to mature our faith, to strengthen our faith, to sustain our faith, to preserve our faith. And Paul goes on to unpack this a little bit more in verse 16 when he says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Paul's saying this, the Old Testament and the New Testament alike are inspired by God. What does that mean? What does it mean that they're inspired by God? This is what it means. They are breathed out by God. Then God said, let there be light. God's creative word went out from him and And created that which he said. God's word is breathed out by him and creates, sustains, builds our faith from beginning to end. Here's what he's saying. If you're taking notes, write this down. Anywhere the Bible speaks, God speaks. Anywhere the Bible speaks, God speaks. What about Leviticus? Yes, even Leviticus. It's hard to understand, but that's our problem. It's our fault, but it plays an important role in understanding the atonement that Christ is coming to bring in the future, which we now live on that side of because of the cross. Listen to Jonathan Lehman. He says this, God's word is an extension of himself, his identity, purposes, affections, and power. In fact, God so identifies with his word that to hear his words that comprise the whole Bible is to hear him. To obey his words is to obey him. To ignore his words is to ignore him. He so identifies himself with his word that our response to his words is our response to him. Whoa, whoa. But let me ask you a question. Why must God's speech be recorded in a book? Do we really need help 
to know what God is saying to us today? After all, aren't we the pinnacle of his creation, created in his image and likeness? Shouldn't that mean that our thoughts are something like his thoughts on spiritual matters? Well, here's the problem. That would be right, but there's a problem. An invasive species called sin has totally corrupted our human nature so that we cannot discern God's will in any matter of life. By nature, we are so misguided that if there was a multiple choice test, we would get every answer wrong. But God, in his mercy, has revealed himself to us. We would never know anything about him unless he reveals himself to us. And he has revealed his will to us in his word, and he has preserved it for us in every generation so that we might know his heart, that we might know his mind for every situation in our lives. And that's why all scripture, Paul says in verse 16, is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And all scripture is able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Jesus. Because scripture is the only place that simultaneously shows us the grossness of our sin and the greatness of our Savior. The scriptures are a signpost that simultaneously show us the law. Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God while simultaneously also showing us the greatness of God in sending a Savior and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. The scriptures are a signpost that simultaneously show us the law, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, while also pointing us to the Savior. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The scriptures uniquely are the only place that show us our terrible need and condition before a holy God while simultaneously showing us of the great provision that he has made for us and sending a savior to die in our place for our sins so that we could be restored to a relationship with him forever. And all scripture, when diligently applied to the life of a disciple, is able to make the Christian, as Paul says in verse 17, complete, equipped for every good work. Man. Friend, do you feel the Bible's importance this morning? Do you sense the exclusive role that the Bible is designed to play in your life? Do you grasp the gravity of what it would mean if you let go your grip 
God's word. Everything that you love about being in right relationship with the Lord would wilt. Now, I'm not suggesting that you lose your salvation. But what I am suggesting and I am saying is that God has given his word as the most important means to sustain, strengthen, and keep our faith. You let go of it, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You let go of the word, your faith, what happens if you stop feeding yourself? You die. If you stop feeding your faith. Will wilt. If your answer is yes in all those questions, do you sense? Do you see? Do you feel? If the answer is yes, I see. Yes, I sense. Yes, I feel. Then here's my follow up What are you going to do about it in 2024? What are you going to do about it in this new year? As Tim Campbell likes to say, What is your plan of attack? What is your plan of attack to study? to know and to grow in God's word this new year. Listen, the path to maturity in Christ follows the pattern of Scripture. Are you on it? Let's close in prayer. Father, we come as remarkably undeserving people, but who are responding in great gladness and faith this morning Because though we are undeserving, you have come and said that you love us. That you have chosen us before the foundations of the world. That that you, that you are holding, keeping, and sustaining us. God, you have given us your word. Thank you. We love you so much. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.